I think I may have discussed this before, but many years back, I worked in a job making frozen pancakes, and we had to make a massive amount of batter. One of the tests we did every time we would make a batch is to see how viscous it is. We had tolerances for temperature and viscosity and different things, and I can't remember all the specifics now because it's been quite a while back, but viscosity was one of them. And what we would do is we'd take a, a, a measurement of it, like a sample, and pour it into this little thing that would have a little gate you flip open, and it'll see, after 30 seconds, you'll see how many centimeters it flowed, and you'll write down on your paperwork how many centimeters it flowed, and it had a certain range it's supposed to be within, you know, so obviously if it was runnier, less viscous, it would flow more centimeters if it was thicker, more viscous, it would flow uh, fewer centimeters. So on our paperwork, it had a column labeled viscosity, and you'd write down on each batch how many centimeters it flowed. 11 centimeters, 12, 13 centimeters. And how viscous it was affected how we ran on the griddles when we actually cooked that batter into pancakes. The more it deviated from target, the more trouble it caused us running it. So clearly that would be something that we would, as an operator, keep a close eye on because we don't want to have a rough evening. We want to run where we need to be running so that we have a smooth, uneventful evening. But when I talk to my operators, the way they discussed it is a higher amount of centimeters, which would be runnier, they called that higher viscosity, and then lower numbers meant lower viscosity. Now, technically that's not the way it works. That's not the way it is by definition. By definition, viscosity is a resistance to flow. So by definition, higher viscosity would flow less. So lower numbers, fewer centimeters of that would flow would technically be higher viscosity. But we're not dealing with scientists here. We're dealing with Joe Sixpack and random Joe Bob on the street. But I just kind of played along with their terminology, even though I knew it was technically inaccurate because I didn't want to get in an argument, didn't want to cause confusion. But one day I was talking to a coworker, kind of joking around about something, and in that joking and in that line of dialogue, I used the term viscosity correctly by its actual definition, and it caused some confusion, and we ended up getting into, I don't know if I want to quite say argument, it wasn't heated, but it was a clear um, debate. And since I was technically younger than them, they must know more than me, they're smarter and wiser than me because they were my elders. Of course, that's not really the way intelligence or just smarts work. And no matter how old you are, there's always going to be things that you're wrong about, things you don't know. Now, this was back before everybody had smartphones. I don't think smartphones were even a thing at all back then yet. Or, I don't know, maybe they were just starting to come into existence, but most people didn't have one. So we couldn't just simply whip out our smartphone and get on the internet and Google it. Now, we had internet at home, but back then I felt like, well, what would be a compelling um, argument in my case uh, would be to go to a library and grab an actual physical book, an encyclopedia, and find an article about viscosity. I photocopied the page and brought it in the next day to show her the photocopied page with the article about viscosity, explaining to her exactly how I was right. And she wouldn't even look at it. She just chose to like blah, 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 la, 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 I'm not listening. I don't know, I guess like as long as she didn't look at it, she didn't have to accept that I was right. So it was deliberate 
willful ignorance, and I really, I hate that. Which brings me to my topic here today, flat earthers. Here lately, it almost feels like Facebook is trolling me because it keeps throwing, suggesting all these uh, flat earther posts to me as something it thinks I might be interested in seeing. Now, I'm sure that's just a consequence of an algorithm it has. I guess it's noticed that I have looked at and commented on flat earther posts lately. Not that I'm a flat earther. I am very definitely not a flat earther. I passionately hate flat earth nonsense. But I guess the Facebook algorithms that decide what it suggests to you sees like, hey, we've noticed that you've been looking at these things, the commenting on these things, that you must be interested in this. So here you go. But to me, it almost feels like I'm being trolled by Facebook. But when you get into the flat earther nonsense and you look at their posts, their comments, their hive mind, there's this ridiculous religiosity to all of it and a pervasive willful ignorance. I mean, in a perfect world, two people could sit down with two different conflicting points of view and have a civil conversation arguing their point of view and why they think the other person's is inaccurate, why the other person might be wrong. But when you're dealing with flat earthers, it's like you're talking to a brick wall. I mean, from them, you get this like relentless parade of nonsense after nonsense after nonsense. And it's obvious to anybody with a, an intellectual ability uh, uh, greater than that of a poodle that it's, it's complete nonsense. But like when you try to sit down and explain to them why it's complete nonsense, like, look, this is where your flaws are in your logic here. There, it just goes in one ear and out the other. Now, at this point, I can almost hear them wanting to argue with me like, well, wait a minute, we're presenting all these arguments on, for our case and you're not receiving any of them. Like, well, no, I'm hearing what you're saying. I'm considering what you're saying and I'm open to the possibility that my perspective might be wrong, but your logic is heavily broken and I can shoot it full of holes. So if your argument is complete bullcrap and I can point out exactly why it's broken, then I'm not going to be swayed by your complete bullcrap. I think I mentioned this before. I'd seen someone had suggested before that if we're having an argument, I should be able to stop you and ask like, hey, what would it take to convince you that maybe your perspective, maybe your argument is, is wrong? And there should be some kind of an answer other than nothing. If their answer is nothing, nothing on earth will convince them that they're possibly wrong, then there's no point in continuing to argue. And every time I've ran into flat earthers and dealt with flat earthers, that seems to be their position, that there is nothing that you could say or do or show them that would ever convince them to change their mind. There's so much content coming from these flat earther communities that you could dedicate a full-time podcast with daily episodes updating everybody on the latest nonsense that's come from them and shooting down today's batch of bullcrap. Now, the Facebook groups and other pages that I've seen dedicated to flat earth nonsense will often have names like Research Flat Earth or Flat Earth Research. I know years back I used to see them, they just go into like YouTube comments and just post Research Flat Earth. I've seen pictures of like people running into vehicles where somebody's got it as like a bumper sticker or a window sticker, Research Flat Earth. But whenever I actually see their communities, like the stuff that they post and discuss, 
it's never reflective of any actual research. It's just nonsense, um, often presented in meme format. So when they say, hey, uh, research flat earth, it's basically, hey, come and look at our memes. But memes and making memes isn't doing research, and memes are not evidence. But for some reason, that's all they ever seem to do. I never see them, hey, look, I did this experiment. Here's my results, uh, what I found, learned from my experiments, or like videos showing things that they're um, testing, demonstrating. It's just memes. Every time you look at the content of these memes, though, it seems, from my experience anyways, like it always is relying on some kind of like a logic fallacy, a misunderstanding of how something works. But a frustrating problem for me is that I can point out like, well, here's what's wrong with your logic here. This is the part that you don't seem to understand. And you try to explain it to them, to educate them. And like I said, it just goes in one ear and out the other. Tomorrow, they're just posting variations of the same thing, like you didn't even bother explaining it to them. They seem to have no interest in learning or understanding anything. Often, our memes seem to present something that normal people believe and understand, but they, it presents it in a way that seems like it's silly and stupid and doesn't make any sense. But what you basically got here is that they aren't personally smart enough to understand it, so it must be stupid. It can't be that they're stupid. It's got to be that the idea is stupid. Yeah, I mean, like, it can't be that they aren't smart enough to understand how gravity works, what keeps stuff from falling off the Earth. Uh, it's got to be that the idea of gravity and around Earth must be stupid. Now, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say that every one of them is actually genuinely stupid. I'm sure there's a big element of that there, but surely there's got to be some of them anyways that are actually fairly bright in general. But rather than them not being smart enough to understand, they just choose not to understand. So what exactly is Flat Earth Society? Who are they? What do they believe? And why do they believe it? So what we basically have here is a movement of biblical literalists and science deniers that choose to reject the model of a round earth in favor of a flat earth model. Among their numbers, though, there doesn't seem to be any real universal consensus on anything. I don't know if I'd say that all of them have a religious motivation for what they believe, but that does seem to be a pretty common one. Probably at least the vast majority of them have some kind of a religious reason for believing what they choose to believe. There also seems to be an element of conspiracy theory that there's some kind of like a global movement, and I, I just realized that's kind of funny, but anyway, um, that governments or other people like in authority type roles or um, have this motivation wanting to convince all of us that the earth is round for whatever reason, I guess that's up to the imagination. But when I say that there isn't really a universal consensus amongst their numbers on much of anything, even the model that they use for what the flat earth is supposed to be looking like, the form that it takes, um, there's contradiction even there. The most common model that I've seen from their communities is like a disk with the North Pole being at the center of it and then all the continents radiating out from that. And then Antarctica, rather than being a, um, a glaciated continent at the bottom end of the world is instead a wall of ice around the, the border of the disk. And then everything you see is like the sky, including the stars and everything, exists in some kind of a dome over top of that giant disk. 
However, that's not the only model that they uh, believe in. There's other groups of them that believe in alternative models for the flat earth. Uh, another alternative is a square or diamond-shaped earth. And there's another model where the earth actually extends beyond that ring of ice, that there's further continents that we don't have names for beyond that. Uh, at least some versions of that have it going on infinitely in all directions. The specifics of their beliefs and their explanations for things are often contradictory. Now a common misconception, not just in flat earth community, but like the world in general, is that we've only in recent history learned that the earth is round, say the last few hundred years maybe, but that's not really accurate. Uh, well over 2,000 years ago, I think like the 5th or 6th century BC, there were scholars that were figuring out way back then that the earth is round and over time that belief become increasingly widespread so for a while there would have been cultures in the world that believed understood that the earth is round while other pockets of uh, people of different cultures elsewhere may still have held to the belief that the earth is flat but over time that became increasingly a common understanding that the earth is round uh, so this goes back thousands of years not just a few hundred years but a lot of the flat earthers seem to have a religious motivation for believing that the earth is flat based on a literal translation of the Bible, what it says in the Old Testament. So something that needs to be understood is that the Bible wasn't written by God and it wasn't written by Jesus. And Christians know this. It was written by regular humans just like you and I. And it wasn't written by one human and it wasn't written at one place and at one time. When you go through the Bible, there's actually 66 books in the Bible. What we call the Bible is actually a collection of, well, I don't want to say quite unrelated scriptures, but independent scriptures written by different people at different places and different times. They're not even all of the scriptures either. Uh, at some point, some people got together and took some of the scriptures that were available out there that they felt were relevant and bound them together into what we know now as the Bible. But the Old Testament scriptures actually predate Jesus. They were before there was any such thing as Christianity. They're actually Jewish texts. Those Old Testament scriptures actually date back well over 2,000 years. So we're going back into a time when people didn't yet know that the earth was flat. Those scriptures were written by people based on the knowledge and understanding available at that time. If you could somehow take one of those um, authors from way back then to our time today and just give them like have them walk around for 24 hours just giving them a glimpse of our modern world and the technologies that we have now our automobiles televisions the internet computers cell phones and then send them back in time two three thousand years ago whatever and have them write down about what they experienced how well would they even be able to describe what they seen they wouldn't have a word for an automobile, for an airplane, for a computer, for a, a smartphone. Not only would they not have a name for it, but they might have an, a difficult time describing what they even do exactly or how they do it. I mean, like, let's say they tried to describe a smartphone. Maybe you've shown them a smartphone, a little bit of what it can do. They might have to describe it as some kind of like a magical slate with a magical mirror or a window of some kind on it that lets you see into other places or other things. But the authors of those scriptures at that time 
wrote with the understanding that they had of the world at the time. We don't really need to take their description of the world as literal and fact. And today, the vast majority of Christians don't accept a flat earth model. They accept that the earth is round. So why would anybody even care in the first place? Why would any government or corporation or the Illuminati or whatever even care whether you believe that the earth was round or flat? Why would they invest so much time and effort and finances and resources into this lie and perpetuating the lie? I mean, like me, yeah, I want you to know the truth just for the sake of knowing the truth, but I don't really benefit from it, whether you believe that the earth is round or flat or whatever you choose to believe in. But when you try to show evidence to flat earthers, whether it's NASA photos of the earth or whatever, there's always this explanation that involves some kind of a global conspiracy. And again, it's kind of funny when I say it that way. So you've got some they, this evil whatever organization entity, that's up to your imagination, evidently, that for whatever reason finds it beneficial to them to invest billions, maybe trillions of dollars in all this false evidence and perpetuating this lie. I remember an episode of South Park that involved underpants gnomes. And the underpants gnomes would come out while you're asleep and they'll rummage through your wardrobe and steal your underpants. Now, this annoyed the kids and baffled the kids. Like, why would you even... Why would this be a thing? Why would you do this? And the underpants gnomes, to them, it made perfectly good sense. And they tried to explain it to the kids as though it made perfectly good sense. And they had this chart. Step one, steal underpants. Step two, step three, profit. Now, of course, to the kids on the show and to any sane person hearing this or seeing this chart, that doesn't make any more sense. But the underpants gnomes acted like it makes perfectly good sense. And here it is. This is why we do it. It's obvious that seems to be the way it is with the flat earthers and their explanation for why this nondescript they is perpetuating this lie. Step one, lie to everybody, convincing everybody that the earth is round instead of flat. Step two, step three, profit. Profit how exactly? What would they gain from doing all this? Now, one of the explanations I had seen, of course, in meme format was that they, whoever they is, wants you to believe that the earth is flat, so you believe in this. And according to that meme, it, it had a chart showing depicting evolution of species, you know, from an ape-like ancestor into a modern man. Now, evidently, to that flat earther, this made perfectly good sense, but why would that make sense? Those are two unrelated things. Evolution of species doesn't really have anything to do with whether the earth is round or flat. All over the world, there's millions of Christians that accept and believe in a round earth, but don't accept evolution of species. You could perfectly well believe in a round earth and not an evolution of species. And like I said, there's millions of people that do. Or you could have evolution of species on a flat earth or independent things. But again, even if that was somehow a thing, if it somehow worked that way, why would anybody care? What would anybody profit from you believing that? And this sort of logic here, this line of conspiracy theory, uh, would have uh, some kind of modern government organization or a corporation or whatever other sort of person in power wanting to uh, perpetuate this lie. But this isn't like a modern thing. Like I said, people back over 2,000 years ago were starting way back then to figure out that the Earth is round. And a lot of people understood 
1,000, 2,000 years ago that the Earth was round. So the United States government, the Russian government, whatever government you want to point to today didn't exist back then. Microsoft didn't ex exist back then. Ford didn't exist back then. Whatever corporation you, know, you want to point to now didn't exist back then. One of the suggestions I've seen wasn't that it was about profit. It was about control or power. And once again, how does believing one over the other have any influence, any control over you? I mean, if today I went from believing that the earth is round to being convinced that the earth was flat, my life wouldn't really change any. I wouldn't be suddenly liberated. There wouldn't be any difference in my job, in my financial, uh, financial situation. Uh, my home would be exactly the same. My family would be exactly the same. My relationship with friends would be exactly the same, aside from maybe the fact that they might roll their eyes a little bit more whenever I go off into a nonsensical rant about how the earth is flat. I think what we get into here is what we get into with all the stuff that I see from the flat earth community is that you're not really supposed to give it any thought. It looks good at a glance or sounds good at a glance as long as you don't give it a shred of thought after that. Just accept it at face value, shut up, and move on. Oh, well, so they want you to believe that the earth is round and to believe in evolution of species so that you don't believe in God, and that gives them control over you instead of you putting faith in a higher power. All right, so once again, how does that make any sense? There are millions of Christians everywhere. I have lots of them in my life, friends and family, and their day-to-day -day life is exactly the same as my day-to-day -day life and every other non-Christian's day-to-day life. Whether or not you believe in a higher power doesn't really change anything about your job, about your finances, about your family, about your friends. It doesn't really change the world around you. So how are people that believe in evolution of species and gravity and that the earth is round have any uh, less freedom uh, liberty, how are they any more controlled by some other entity? Just none of this makes any sense. And yet, for, for whatever reason, to subscribe to all this, you have to believe that there's some sort of an entity out there, a corporation or governments or whatever, um, some secret society perhaps, that for whatever reason feels that it is worth investing a tremendous amount of resources and effort for absolutely no evident logical purpose. So just a little bit ago, I ran into a post on a Facebook group, a flat earth research type group. Now this one, I don't think it was made by a flat earther himself. I think it was somebody that was kind of, I don't know if I want to say trolling him, but pointing out something. But it was a picture of the alleged ice wall with a boat next to it. And then people climbing up that wall over top of the ice wall. And it was kind of getting at like, why don't the or flat earthers do something like this? Now, I pointed out, though, that while they call themselves stuff like Flat Earth Research or they'll spam on message boards or Facebook posts or YouTube comments, you know, research Flat Earth, but none of them actually does any research. I mean, there's nothing really stopping them from researching stuff like the ice wall, but yet they just don't do it. And I think it's because they don't want to face the possibility that they could be wrong. I think they're just kind of playing it safe and just pretending like these are things that we can't actually prove. That way they don't have to face the possibility that they're wrong. Now you can maybe argue that the average Joe on the street doesn't have the financial resources to do something like going to the ice wall to see if they can get past it, to see what's beyond it. But not every flat earther 
is a regular Joe on the street. At least some of them, from what I've seen, are celebrity types with a little bit more fame and a little bit more financial resources to burn. You know, these celebrities will often have their own private jet, uh, private their own boats. I really couldn't imagine what's stopping them from going to the ice wall and seeing, you know, if it is an actual ice wall and to see if they can get past it and what's on the other side of it. But yet, I mean, you never see them actually do it. Why not? Now, when I talk about how none of them actually researches anything, I'm kind of generalizing. It's not to say that none of them ever have. On rare occasion, I'll see where somebody has done some research. So once in a while, one of them actually almost tries. You'll find one that finally decides to actually be smart about it, to almost be scientific about it. I don't remember all of them exactly off the top of my head. Uh, a couple types of experiments that come to mind was the one where a bunch of them got a bunch of money together and got this expensive, elaborate $15,000 gyroscope to try to prove with that expensive gyroscope that the Earth isn't rotating. I think I've seen a few of them that involve like a large body of water, like a, a, some kind of a large lake that's pretty flat, you know, smooth, uh, calm, and we're doing experiments with like say light or laser beams like measuring across it to see if there's you know if it's all level or if there's any change in the height of stuff so there there's these moments of hope like hey look somebody's actually trying to do what they say they do and trying to actually research and trying to be intelligent about this right up to the point where they don't get the result that they want as soon as they get the don't get the result that they want, the disappointment sets in. We're like, hey, you were so close to being smart about this, but you didn't get what you want. And you weren't happy with it and decided to reject it. I can't remember if I've already mentioned it in this particular episode, but the gyroscope one, it was showing 15 degrees of drift per hour. And they figured it was some kind of a calibration issue or whatever. I can't remember what their BS explanation was for it. But if you do the math on that, 15 degrees of rotation per hour times 24 hours is 360 degrees of rotation. They accidentally prove that the Earth is round and rotates a full 360 degrees in a day. But that wasn't the result that they wanted, so all well would have shrugged it off as inconclusive. But let's say NASA gets together uh, with these flat Earthers and say, hey, you know what, we'll take a handful of you guys up into space. We'll show you that the Earth is round. You can come back and tell all the rest of your flat Earth friends that the Earth is round. It wouldn't do any good. Because they would just come back like, oh yeah, um, either they would directly reject what they saw as some kind of a hoax, like, oh, it's this elaborate setup on the part of NASA with like a simulation or whatever, and, you know, computer screens out the window rendering this stuff or whatever. Or even if they did believe it, their buddies wouldn't believe it when they come back to Earth. They come back and tell them like, oh, well, obviously you've been bought by the government or whatever they, whatever organization they think is behind all this. Oh, you're working for them now. You're on their payroll. Now, while I'm on Broken Logic and stuff that I've seen recently, today I had seen a post, and I believe it was well-intended, um, but it had a picture depicting a person like a giant jigsaw puzzle with some pieces missing. And I had a thought-out, I guess seemingly well-meaning paragraph about what it described as globe lovers and what it was getting at is that as globe lovers are incomplete. So I live in an area that is a really passionate about Donald Trump and there seems to be this pervasive point of view that if you don't love Donald Trump and hate Joe Biden, then the only other option on the table is that you must adore Joe Biden. 
that isn't realistic at all. There are other options available, like maybe you're not a big fan of either one of them, or maybe you're not a fan of one and hate the other one. But if you start talking, it becomes evident to them that you don't worship Donald Trump, then obviously the only other uh, available option is that you must worship Joe Biden. It seems to me to be kind of similar to that with the um, this post about you know globe lovers, as they put it, that either you are uh, had this fervent religiosity about flat Earth, or it must be similar, but with round Earth, and that isn't really the case at all. With round Earth, it's not really uh, a passion for us. It's just simply the way it is. We don't really care what the shape of the earth is. We don't have any personal investment in it. There isn't anything religious about it. I mean, we don't really care whether it's flat or it's round or it's a cube or it could be a giant Pikachu. I mean, if it somehow comes out tomorrow that we've been mistaken all along and it's a giant uh, Pikachu planet, okay, well, cool, we're living on a massive Pikachu, whatever. Now, I've seen in the past people roll their eyes at like scientists, scientific uh, communities in general like, oh, they have no idea what they're talking about. They're just making it up and talking out their hind end uh, all the time. They're telling you this today and tomorrow. They're coming back and saying, no, we're wrong about that. It's this. Well, that's the way it's supposed to be. You're not supposed to just pick a position and stubbornly, religiously keep with it for the rest of all eternity. That would be ignorant. What's supposed to happen and what a sane person would do is you're presented with conflicting information, you know, that contradicts what your previous position was, suggests that, hey, maybe you were wrong yesterday. Okay, fine. I'll revise my position today in light of this new information. That's what a sane, logical, rational, scientific person does. And that's what the scientific community does. They're telling you today what we know today based on the knowledge that we have available, uh, available to us today. Now, if we learn something new tomorrow that teaches us that what we thought we knew today was wrong, then we'll revise our position in favor of the new, more updated information. But with certain people, that's not the way it works. You take a position and you believe that passionately and you stick with that and you won't consider anything to the contrary no matter what you're presented. That is not rational. That is not logical. That is not intelligent. That's stubborn ignorance. Now, moving on from general concepts to some specifics here. One of the most common arguments I've seen from flat earthers, maybe the most common one that I've personally seen, has to do with not understanding how stuff doesn't fall off of a giant ball. I so often, pretty much on a daily basis, will see some kind of a meme depicting a globe with whether it's boats on it falling off or water running off of it or people standing on the uh, upside down from their perspective part of it and you know why aren't these people falling off does this make any sense yes it does make sense if we've explained it to you over and over and over again you just choose to ignore what we're saying and act like we're making stuff up or we're retarded or just pretend we didn't give you an answer the answer to that is gravity and we've explained the basics of how gravity works and how it keeps stuff from falling off of what is uh quote unquote upside down so of course if you're a flat earther gravity is pretty inconvenient uh, to your arguments here, so you must hate gravity. And from what I've seen, they generally do. They reject gravity outright. But of course, every one of us knows that gravity or something like gravity has to be a thing because stuff falls towards the Earth, right? And that's inconvenient to them, so they got to have some kind of an explanation for that other than gravity. So the most common argument that I've personally seen trying to explain what we perceive as gravity 
is that uh, the flat disc that we're supposedly on is accelerating upwards. Now it has to be accelerating because even flat earthers know that when things fall, they don't fall at a constant rate, they accelerate. But you know, from their argument, rather than it being gravity pulling stuff towards it, the disc earth is accelerating at 9.8 meters per second squared. Now what's funny about this is I often see memes joking about how it makes no sense that earth could be rotating at a thousand miles per hour like we should be getting flung off of it or I've seen pictures of like the movie Spaceballs where they jump to ludicrous speed and everybody's getting thrown back against you know the back wall like well why aren't we experiencing that now of course the reason for that is it's not speed that you feel throwing you like when you're driving down uh, the road in your car you feel pushed back against your seat when you're accelerating. Once you get up to a constant speed and stay there, you don't you no longer feel that. It's the acceleration that is throwing you against the back of your seat. But Earth, at least according to actual science, isn't accelerating. We're revolving around our axis at a constant rate of about a thousand miles an hour if you measure it at the equator. Now as an illustration, I'm going to point to the Concorde. I don't know if everybody's heard of it uh, it's been several decades back I don't know if it even still flies I don't think it does but it reached a top speed of 1300 and some miles per hour now that is faster than the earth revolving at a thousand miles an hour but those people that was like a, some kind of a luxury type liner the passengers on there were flying in complete comfort they weren't like pasted like uh, plastered against their seat with their their face melting off they were perfectly comfortable, just like you're sitting there listening to me right now. Moving at a thousand some miles an hour didn't feel any different from what you're feeling right now. But the reason I mention all this is according to their explanation for what we perceive as gravity is that Earth is accelerating upwards. Now, if you think about that for a minute, it never, ha it can't stop accelerating. It must constantly be accelerating ever since the creation of the Earth. So I'm not doing the math on all this, but just try to imagine a constant rate of acceleration, 9.8 meters per second every single second for all eternity. I mean, just by the end of a 24-hour day, what mind-boggling speed would Earth be accelerating at? And somehow that makes perfectly good sense to them, but the idea of us revolving at 1,000 miles per hour is just ludicrous. But there's a big problem with their idea that Earth must be accelerating upwards at 9.8 meters per second squared. See, in the real world, when things fall, everything falls at its own independent rate. And it's not just simply like wind resistance. Of course, a piece of paper falling might kind of gently float down because of wind resistance. But what every one of us knows, at least if you have any remote understanding of gravity and how the world works, is that everything falls at a different rate, independent you know, to that object, based on how long it's been falling. I don't know if I word all that pretty well, but what I'm getting at is if something started falling two seconds ago, it's going to be falling at a faster rate than something that just started falling one second ago. Both those objects could be right next to each other, independently falling at two totally different speeds based on when they started falling. Now, if they're not falling because of gravity, but because Earth is accelerating upwards at 9.8 meters per second squared, Earth would have to be accelerating towards both of those at the same rate, not two different speeds simultaneously. Now, how do we know that things are falling at their own speeds? Uh, we can actually test that. You don't have to take somebody's word for it. You can test it yourself if you want to. So, um, I don't know, just off the top of my head, a, a way we could possibly go out and test this right now, you and I could go to, say, like a, a high-rise. 
Each of us might take an apple or a basketball, whatever. One of us will go up to, say, the 100th floor, 50th floor, whatever, and the other one might only be four or five floors up, and we'll hang out the window with whatever it is that we're dropping. The one on the top floor, whatever, however high up they are, will drop theirs first. The one lay lower down, they'll just kind of eyeball it whenever that object gets about where they're at. They'll drop theirs and see which one of them hits the ground first. Now, of course, you could try to argue human error and stuff, but if you actually watch this happen, there's going to be enough of a difference in it to account for more than just human error. I mean, if you have somebody recording it in high speed or something, go back and play it back in slow motion, you should be able to plainly see that the two objects are falling at very different rates. Now, if you don't like that one or you have some kind of a problem with it, maybe it's too difficult to time it right or whatever, come up with your own variation of it. But the principle here is, is that two objects can be falling at the same place at the same time but one of them falling, you know, uh, sooner than the other one and falling at different velocities. So what this ends up proving is that Earth isn't accelerating upwards, but gravity has to be an actual thing. Now, it's not just velocity and gravity that flat earthers are unable or unwilling to understand. They also really struggle to wrap their head around scale. I mean, just the other day I seen a meme with a picture of uh, Earth as seen from way out in space. I mean, not way, way out. It wasn't like a little blue dot. It was close enough that you could make out clouds and continents and everything. But it was a fair ways out. And they were commenting on that it seems like if we're moving at 1,000 miles an hour that everything should be a blur. Now, I appreciate that 1,000 miles an hour seems like it's a really fast speed. And compared to what we would normally do walking around, driving around, that is a fast speed. But the Earth is a very big place. And even at that high rate of speed... It still takes a full 24 hours for the Earth to revolve one single solitary time. It's not like you're going to sit there watching Earth rapidly spinning like a giant merry-go-round. I don't know how many times I've seen memes with a regular desktop globe. You know, one of your regular, like, foot and a half or whatever size globes you might have on an office desk or whatever. Then the, the pictures will depict it rapidly rotating and with a comment, something about, like, well, if it's moving at 1,000 miles an hour... How, are we aren't, how aren't we all getting flung off into space? Now, if you walk up to one of them globes and you spin it really quick like it's depicted in the pictures, and if that's what the real Earth did, then yeah, we would be flung off into space. But that's not the rate at which it's revolving. Yes, a 1,000 miles an hour seems really fast, but when you scale it down to a desktop globe, you wouldn't even notice it moving. I mean, seriously, walk up to the nearest globe that you know of and just stare at it and think about it for a minute. Imagine that globe rotating one time in 24 hours. Would you be able to notice, just sitting there staring at it, would you be able to notice it moving? I'm going to quickly correct myself here, just being pedantic. I keep saying revolve. The correct term would actually be rotate. We revolve around the sun. We rotate around our axis. Now, speaking of scale, there's also the matter of the sheer scale of the cover-up. I mean, if the reality of it was that Earth was a giant flat disk and we have certain people in some kind of powerful position that are uh, orchestrating all this, like pushing this lie, we wouldn't be talking about like a handful of people worldwide. We're not talking 5, 10, 20, 100 um, special people in the know. I mean, there's just too many people on Earth that would be in a position that they would be aware of this. So say it was the governments that are involved in this. Well, there's roughly 200 countries in the world. All of those 200 countries would have to be in on this together. 
Now, what's the chances of that? That the United States, China, Russia, Japan, um, Spain, Italy, Denmark, Sweden, Brazil, Egypt, Chile, Germany, New Zealand, Canada. I mean, what's the single chances that every single solitary one of those is all in on it together? Now, most of us, you and I, in our regular day-to-day -day lives, we're not really in a position to be aware of the scale of everything, the distances of everything. When you take something curved like the Earth and flatten it out onto a sheet of paper for a map, there ends up being some distortion of distances. Now, map makers have different techniques for trying to minimize distortion, but there's always going to be some distortion when you take something curved and smash it out flat. I know a lot of the maps from my childhood, uh, when you look at North America, you know, the United States isn't so bad, but when you get farther north, little things end up being spread out really big, like Greenland and Iceland end up being many times their actual size on there, just because when you get to that end of the map, it ends up being so badly distorted. When you're dealing with a small-scale map, like, say, the county you live in, it's not so bad. But when you get to bigger distances, it starts to become a, a big deal. Now, if the reality was that Earth was flat, uh, the distances on our round model wouldn't work. Again, like I say, on a small scale, you might not notice much of a difference. But when you get to traveling across the country or in internationally, that starts to become a really big factor. Now, most of the flat Earth models I've seen has the North Pole at the center of the map, and then the Northern Hemisphere will be closest to the center, and then when you get into the Southern continents, they're way farther out toward the outer edge. So the, the distances on that map will uh, be very, very different toward the Southern end than what you'd have like on a globe. So I was making some measurements on a globe model, and if you were trying to travel from like the southern end of South America to the southern end of Africa, you're looking at around 4,000 miles, give or take, depending on your exact point of destination and um, arrival. I'm sorry, departure and arrival. But if you look at the distances from those same locations on a flat Earth model, you're looking at maybe three times that. I mean, that's a really huge in, uh, difference and distance on those two models and somebody doing international flights sooner or later would notice that or if you're not just flights but i mean shipping if you're shipping stuff uh with a, a cargo uh boat or something you know you're if you're sailing across the atlantic ocean from africa to south america or vice versa you're going to notice like hey why is this twelve thousand miles instead of four thousand miles so any company and anybody involved in these companies that has to do stuff internationally on a global scale is going to sooner or later notice that the distances don't line up. Anybody that does any international shipping is going to notice this, whether it's through airplanes or through cargo ships. They're going to notice that these distances don't line up at all. I mean, regular postal services, FedEx, Amazon, they're going to notice these things. I'm a fan of Formula One, and they have Grand Prix in almost every continent on Earth, and they got to ship all their stuff from race to race, often large distances around the world. And, and it's a huge operation. There's a lot of people involved, a lot of expense involved, a lot of cargo involved. And these people uh, affiliated with F1, and they have people uh, on their teams from all over the world, they will notice like you know, that the distances don't line up with our global model at all, if that was the case. And it wouldn't just be people directly affiliated with these. I mean, people talk. It's just the way it is. So if you're somebody that works uh, for Amazon and you're in the know because 
you're going to notice that the distances that you have to ship stuff don't line up. Uh, sooner or later, you're going to trust, you're going to confide in your spouse or your children or a best friend, and then they're going to confide in people. Now, while we're on the subject of scale and their inability to understand it, probably the most common and best argument I've seen from them is, well, it looks flat to me. They seem to be under the impression, whether because they're just incapable of understanding or being deliberately obtuse, that just a few miles out, you should see the Earth dramatically drop off if it's a giant sphere. Now, the Earth is several thousand miles across. It has a circumference of around 24,000 miles. That's a very big curve. Actually, if we're going to round off, it's technically closer to 25,000 miles. So how can I demonstrate what's going on here? So, I don't know, grab a sheet of paper and a pen or pencil and just draw a circle, a little circle, like one inch in diameter. Now, look at that circle. Now, how much is it going to curve over the distance of one inch? I mean, quite a bit, right? It's going to be 180 degrees of curve. Okay, but now draw a bigger circle, say two inches, three, four, five inches across. Now, on that larger circle, how much uh, curve are you going to get in the space of one inch? I mean, it's dramatically less, right? Okay, now make a much bigger circle, maybe on the, the floor in the living room or something. Make it a 10-foot across circle. And then just look at one inch of that curvature. How much curvature do you see on that one inch of that 10-foot wide circle? The bigger and bigger that we get with that circle, the less that, uh, that one inch is going to seem to curve. It eventually will look like it's essentially a straight, flat line. Now, I can almost hear them wanting to argue like, yeah, but on the real Earth, we see more than an inch. Yeah, and that's true. But you still see a really, really tiny piece of it. I mean, go out in a relatively flat, open plain with nothing obstructing your view and just stand at ground level. A typical person should be able to see about three miles out before the ground drops out of view. Now, if you have anything tall sticking out above that, whether it's high buildings or a water tower or something, yeah, you'll be able to see some of that farther out before it drops out of view. But a few miles is uh, a typical viewing distance. Nobody anywhere stands and looks out and sees hundreds or thousands of miles out. So if you can only see a few miles in each direction, you're looking at an area maybe six miles or so across that you're able to see. That's all the surface area that you can see on a giant sphere, an oblate sphere technically, that has a circumference of 24,901 miles. So basically what you can see wherever you're standing at is essentially nothing. So just playing along with my example of you looking at that one inch out of an entire circle that you're drawing, I need you to go out and draw a really, really big circle with a circumference of 346 feet. Then look at one inch of that entire circle. If I did some rough mathematical calculations right, that's about what you would see relative to the actual Earth. So that little one inch I'd have you looking at would be roughly six miles if we scale it down. Now how big would that circle be in diameter? If I did my math right, it's about 110 feet. So go ahead and draw that circle. It's 110 feet across and then go along the edge of it and look at just one inch of that. How much curvature are you going to see on that one inch? I pretty much guarantee that you're probably not going to see any curvature whatsoever looking at just that one little teeny sliver of it. So something I've been seeing a lot here lately in flat earther communities is a photo of the Chicago skyline seen across Lake Michigan. 
Now, the caption that comes with this is that we're looking at this across 60 miles of Lake Michigan and that we're not supposed to be able to see it at all. But the fact that you can is supposed to be evidence that the Earth is actually flat. But if you actually study that photograph, you're not seeing all of um, Chicago. You're really just seeing the tops of the taller buildings. The bottoms of the buildings and all the lower stuff closer to the ground, houses and buildings are maybe a few stories tall, are completely gone. The bottom several floors of these taller buildings are completely out of view. So for this to work as an argument in favor of the flat earthers, you have to then accept that uh, the entire city of Chicago has been deeply submerged under a basically biblical flood. Now, I don't have height figures for all these buildings offhand, but, I mean, let's just say it was 100 feet underwater. That's a pretty big deal. I would imagine you'd have turned on the news and heard about this big biblical flood that completely destroyed Chicago. And that would have meant that the Lake Michigan would have been what flooded it. And Lake Michigan is a very big lake. It wouldn't flood just Chicago. Everything around it would be completely underwater. And Lake Michigan is just one of the Great Lakes that are all connected. So I would imagine if the water level on, on Lake Michigan arose, say, 100 feet, all the rest of them are probably up, too. And that means a really huge chunk of North America would be deeply flooded. There's no way that was kept out of the news. So, congratulations, Flat Earthers. Your picture that's supposed to prove that the Earth is flat accidentally proved that it must be round. Either that or there's this biblical flood that's drowned millions of people and destroyed tremendous amounts of our country and we've somehow had this massive cover-up keeping it out of the news and from any of us knowing anything about it. Speaking of the curve and stuff dropping behind the curve and being able to see stuff beyond the curve, let's talk about the sun and sunsets. Now as I've already said, there's contradictions and disagreement among the flat earth community as to all the specifics of how stuff works and all. But when it comes to the sun, one of the common depictions I've seen is that it's a glowing ball within the dome that is over the earth. So the giant disk earth is under a giant dome, and the sun and the moon are underneath that dome, hovering so many miles up above the earth, and it goes through a path around the earth. And I think one of the uh, disagreements I've seen is how high up that uh, sun is supposed to be. I think a common figure I've seen is like 300 miles, but I don't guess it really matters for us to discuss it. So for the purposes of this discussion, I want to bear in mind the height of Mount Everest, which is the highest point on Earth, which is just over 29,000 feet. That's just under five and a half miles. That is the highest piece of land anywhere on the planet. Now, according to flat Earth models, the sun is way above that. The height, I guess, doesn't specifically matter for us to discuss it here, but let's go with the 300-mile figure. So if the sun is 300 miles up, that is 295, 294 and a half technically, miles above the height of Mount Everest. Now the reason I bring up that figure is when we get into the issue of how does the sun set on a flat Earth model, because nowhere on Earth would there be anything high enough to block the view of something 300 miles up above the Earth's surface. Now, depending on where you're hanging out at at any given time, if you're in some valley in the Alps, surrounded by high hills or mountains, then it won't be very far. The sun don't have to get very far before it's out of your view. But there's a lot of places on Earth where you can see for hundreds or even thousands of miles without there being anything higher than you. 
And for that matter, if you were on top of Mount Everest or one of the other similarly high mountains, there's nowhere on earth that the sun should ever drop out of your view. I mean, I don't care if it was 10,000 miles or more away on the other side of the earth on this flat earth model, of course. Being that you're at the highest point that you can possibly get to, nothing should obstruct your view of that sun. But now if you ask anybody that's ever climbed any tall mountains at nighttime, maybe had to make camp at night or whatever, they can tell you that the sun absolutely does disappear completely from view. Now, me, myself, I grew up in the Appalachian foothills of southeastern Ohio. Now, if you hear that and you're not from around here, you might imagine, you know, big mountains that might obstruct my view of the sun. But it's not really like that. Even the hilly parts of Ohio aren't really all that terribly hilly. The hills in the area that I lived in maybe had a maximum elevation change from the bottom to the tops of the hills of around 50 to 100 feet of total elevation change. And these hilltops are not like big snow-capped mountain peaks. I mean, they're just low hills, you know, with grass and trees and butterflies and all that happy stuff on top of it. And it's no big deal for people to go up there. I lived actually on top of a hill. My childhood home was on a hill top. Now, yes, there were trees on tops of these hills, and those trees might be 20, 50, maybe 100 feet tall on some of them. But still, we were about the highest thing around, and those trees wouldn't really block my view all that far. I mean, I don't mean I'm sitting there in a dense forest. I mean just a scattered tree here and there in the area where I lived. And I mean, if you look out over a little bit of a valley, and I use the term valley loosely because, like I said, there ain't much elevation change here, and maybe a mile out or whatever, there are some trees over there. They're not really obstructing my view of stuff much farther out. You can still see hills and whatever beyond it. You can definitely see the sun beyond it. I guess what I'm trying to explain here is I have basically an unobstructed view for quite a ways from where we lived at. And if you were like in my yard looking out at the, the setting sun off to the west, there is nothing, mountains or anything, really for thousands of miles out in that direction from where we lived at. I mean, beyond those low rolling hills, you had the Great Plains, and then well beyond that, you finally got to the Rocky Mountains, I don't know, a couple thousand or so probably miles out from there. And even then, those aren't, you know, like the Himalayas or whatever, you're looking at mountains of maybe two or three miles high. And bearing in mind, that's not like right in my backyard. We're talking that's on the other side of the continental United States from where I was sitting at. So if I'm hanging out all day in my backyard, watching the sun go from directly overhead farther westward, it can go west and west and further west and not run into anything that would even remotely have a chance of blocking my view of it. Now, a flat earther might want to make the argument like, well, yeah, but eventually it would go past those mountains that you just admitted were a couple thousand so miles out and are a few miles high and a few miles is higher than your home in Ohio. Like, yeah, but remember, that's a few thousand miles away. So if you could somehow measure that visually, like how much of your field of view, I mean, you wouldn't even see it. And bearing in mind that in the flat earth models I was referring to, the sun is still 300 miles up. That is way, way, way higher than the highest mountains on earth, and especially the Rocky Mountains. And then beyond the Rocky Mountains, it drops back off into the Pacific Ocean, where it goes for many, many, many thousands of miles at literally sea level. So I should never have been able to watch a sunset ever because there's nothing that should be able to set behind. So I want to do a sort of an experiment here, sort of an illustration involving a table. And I'd like for you to play along with me on this, or at least visualize it in your head. 
go to the biggest table you can find, and of course it's going to be flat, flat as a tabletop, literally. And I want you to hunker down next to it on your knees and get your eye level just about the level with the height of the table, just above it so you can peek over it. Now this is supposed to simulate you looking out over the flat earth. Then have a buddy uh, help you out here with some kind of a ball, little ball, a golf ball, tennis ball. So that little ball is going to represent our sun in this sort of an experiment visualization here. Now have your buddy hover that, I don't know, say six inches maybe above the tabletop. Start it out near you, the observer, and just have it cross the sky towards the other end of the table. Now at what point along this sun's path over this giant table here, do you ever see the sun dip beneath the horizon and drop out of view to have a sunset? You can sit here moving around all day long. As long as it stays above the surface of the table, you'll never see a sunset in this demonstration. While we're on it, I'd also like for you to note that the uh, little ball there seems to be bigger when it's closer to you and then seems to shrink away as it gets farther away. Now compare that to your observations of the sun in the real world where its entire path across the sky it has the same apparent size at every point. It never shrinks away toward the horizon and gets bigger when it's overhead. But in the flat earth model, there's really no real reason for you to ever observe a sunset. Now maybe somebody might want to argue like, yeah, but you're using a completely flat tabletop with nothing on it representing hills or mountains or anything. Okay, go ahead and lay a few objects on the table if you want, but make sure that they're way, way, way lower than the sun, because remember, in the flat earth model, the sun is many, 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 many miles up here, whether it's 50 miles up, 100 miles up, 300 miles up, whatever it is, mountains, the highest mountains on earth, ain't even close to that, a fraction of that height. So if our, in our experiment here, if you have that little ball, say six inches off a table surface, go ahead and put you some little napkins or something, uh, puffed up a little bit you know just make sure that they're just a fraction of an inch high to represent the height of mountains relative to the height of our sun here for this demonstration so i mean in real life if the flat earth model was how it actually was you just never have a sunset you just wouldn't and even when the sun is on the far side of your map it would still be it wouldn't be completely at nighttime there would always be some light from that light source even if it's farther away it's not going to be complete darkness and that there brings me to another problem I have with their flat earth model. Whenever they have renderings of it or whatever, trying to depict how the sun and the day and night works, it acts like it's the sun is like a, a desk lamp that just shines down over a certain part of the map and not a ball of light that radiates evenly in all directions. When have you ever looked up the sun and seen it being anything other than a complete sphere? You know, a desk lamp shines over a specific area because it has a shroud around it, keeping light from going in most of the directions and limiting it to a specific area that it shines on. But the sun doesn't have some kind of a big lamp shade over it. I mean, there's no real reason why a spherical light source reading light evenly in all directions would only shine down just beneath of it. So if it doesn't work like a desk lamp just shining straight down, but instead radiating light in all directions, then no matter where it is in its path over the disk Earth, everywhere should be getting some kind of sunlight from it at all times. And the sky should never be dark, uh, not completely, maybe darker if you wanted to have it as like maybe a dim-ish light source, maybe, I don't know. But there should always be, I mean, I don't know, say dusk at best. 
But for that matter, just come to think of it, the sun is actually really, really bright. And I think it's a lot brighter than people give it credit for. I mean, it's bright enough that it is not a good idea. Do not look straight at it because it will do irreparable damage to your retina. There's not very many lights you can look at that would have that same warning with it. A welder's torch, maybe. I remember several years back, I had um, solar eclipse glasses that were given to me by a coworker. And it was for observing the solar eclipse that happened a few years back. Now, I put these glasses on, and it was broad daylight. And I put them on, and all I seen was just gray, almost like somebody had blindfolded you. There was absolutely, literally nothing that you could possibly see through those solar eclipse glasses. It blocked everything 100%. But even so, the sun is so friggin' bright that you can see it through that thing that you otherwise can't see anything through. Now, when we were watching that eclipse, we weren't in the path of totality. We were close. It was like 90-some percent blocked by the moon, but not 100%. Now, when it was being obscured by the moon, you could put the sunglasses on, I mean the uh, solar eclipse glasses on, and see that the moon was blocking most of it, and there was only a little sliver of it left. But then if you suddenly take the solar eclipse glasses off and don't look directly at the sun, not a good idea, but uh, just, you know, out your peripheral vision or whatever, you couldn't even tell that there was an eclipse going on where we were at. Yeah, it got a little bit dimmer out, but as near as you could tell, the sun was still unobstructed up there in the sky. I even had people walking by on the street commenting on that. They didn't have the glasses to look at or nothing. They're like, oh, I don't see anything going on. So the sun is so bright that even like with 90-some percent of it obscured, it was so bright that you couldn't even tell it was blocked. All you seen was a big blob of light glowing up in the sky. So what I'm getting at with all this is if the sun is that friggin' bright, then even when it's on the nighttime, uh, if you're in the nighttime side of the Earth and it's way thousands of miles away on this disk, it should still be bright enough that it's still going to be kind of light where you're at. All right, hold up, hold up, hold up. You know, I kept using the figure of 300 miles above the Earth that the sun supposedly, according to Flat Earthers, 300 miles. Now, like I said, I've seen different figures, I think, but I was thinking it was 300 miles that I'd seen. I was just checking real quick. I stopped for a moment to check to see what I could find, and the figure I just seen just a minute ago was 3,000 miles. Well, that makes it even worse. If the sun is 3,000 miles up, there is absolutely no friggin' way I can possibly imagine that ever dropping from view. I, unless you're sitting in the middle of a valley or something like that, uh, there's no way that you should be able to have the sun drop below the horizon and drop out of view. Especially if you get up on a, a, a high hilltop or something, you should be able to see the sun. I mean, it might be lower in the sky as it's farther away over this flat earth, but you should be able to see it at all times, 24 hours a day. In terms of the debate between a flat earth model and the actual round earth model, there's got to be something more that we can do to prove one or the other besides just taking the word of experts that the earth is round or just going with the stupid memes of the flat earth community. Now, thousands of years ago, certain really brilliant people were able to figure out that the Earth is round through mathematical calculations, but I seriously doubt that the average Joe on the streets is going to want to whip out a calculator and do a bunch of math, a bunch of trigonometry. Flat Earthers, in particular, seem to like to keep stuff really, really simple. That's why they seem to like memes so well. And their best, strongest argument is, well, it looks flat to me. So we need something really simple. It doesn't involve a bunch of calculations. Now, if you're a flat earther, I'm going to call you out here. 
enough with the memes, enough with the bullcrap excuses, put up or shut up. So go and actually test it for yourself with your own eyes or just shut up and accept that the earth is round. So I guess for starters, we've already went on about the sun and sunset. So let's start with that as an experiment that we can do to prove to ourselves one way or the other, is the earth flat or is it round? So what I want you to do is to go to the Pacific Ocean, specifically to the west coast of North or South America. Now something that we all agree on, whether you're a flat earther or a normie, is that the Pacific Ocean is a really, really huge place. What we also agree on, on either model, is that when you get to the north end of it, up toward Alaska, it starts to get smaller. So I don't want you to go that far. Don't go up the Canadian Pacific. Definitely don't go up to Alaska. I want you to be in the continental U.S. or Mexico or maybe even better, South America. What I want is for you to be on the Pacific coast, on the beach, looking out over thousands and thousands of miles of open ocean. When you're looking out over that thousands of miles of sea level, there is absolutely nothing to obstruct your view of the sun. Now, yes, there can be some big waves on the Pacific Ocean or any ocean, really. Uh, they can even be dozens or maybe even 100 plus feet high. But that's feet, not miles. And depending on what numbers you want to go with, with the flat earth community, the sun is hundreds, maybe even a few thousand miles up there. We don't have waves on the Pacific Ocean that's hundreds of miles, let alone, let alone thousands of miles high. So just sit there and wait for the sunset and watch the sunset over that. And it will actually set. You'll see it drop below the horizon. That should never ever in a million years happen on a flat earth model. As we discussed when I was using the uh, hypothetical experiment with our tabletop, is as you watch the sun go westward across the sky, yeah, it would get lower in the sky, even on the flat earth model, but it would never drop below the horizon, not on a flat earth model. And going with the flat earth model, you should observe it shrinking in the sky as it gets farther away from you, which it doesn't actually do in real life. So as you're watching that sunset, if the earth was flat and the flat earth model was anything remotely close to accurate, what you should see is the sun gets smaller as it gets farther away from you and gets lower in the sky, but never ever in a billion years drop beneath the horizon. If you stand there and watch it drop below the horizon, then that's it. That's your proof right there that the earth is round and not flat. But while you're there, I'm going to have you do something else on top of that. As you're laying there on the beach watching the sunset, lay down on the ground watching the sunset. Now, as soon as the sun drops completely out of view beneath the horizon, quick, uh, quickly, as fast as you can, spring up to standing on your feet. And assuming you're five or six feet tall, that should make enough of a difference that you should briefly see the sun again after you've already seen it disappear from view. This would only work with the round earth model where the uh, few extra feet you gained by springing to your feet gave you a little bit further distance um, that you can see uh, ex expanded your view what is your horizon a little bit farther so you could see the sun for a teeny bit longer before it drops out of view. All right, Iceman, I don't really fancy a trip all the way across the country, all the way across the continent to the Pacific coast. What else you got for me? Well, I guess in keeping with the uh, trend of looking to the heavens for answers, I guess we could look at eclipses. Now, a solar eclipse won't do us much good because in the case of a solar eclipse, it's obstructed by the moon, which we already know according to the flat earth model, both of those are in the sky at all times. They could be like, well, maybe the moon's a little bit lower than the sun. That's how it manages to block the sun during a solar eclipse. So instead, let's look to a lunar eclipse, and that's the one that's really going to give us a look at the Earth itself and not the moon or the sun. 
In the case of a lunar eclipse, what we got is that the sun and moon are on opposite sides of the Earth, and the Earth's shadow is casting on the moon. So as we enter a lunar eclipse, you can see the curvature of the round Earth as its shadow crosses the surface of the moon. Now, a flat earther might say, well, but uh, a disk also would cast around shadow too. But a problem with that would be that the sun would have to be on the opposite side of the earth. Now, they could be like, oh, well, yeah, the sun can be on the opposite side of the earth. No, 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 I don't mean like on your flat earth model where we got the moon in the sky over North America and the sun is on the other side of the earth with air quotes um, over in Asia or something. I mean on the what would be underground to us, uh, beneath our feet, that other side of the earth. And that doesn't happen in the flat earth model. So to have a lunar eclipse where the earth's shadow is cast upon the moon, the moon has to be able to come between, or the earth has to come between the moon and the sun, which does not happen in a flat earth model. And when we look at that shadow, we see that the earth is a big round ball. Now, of course, the flat earthers need to have an excuse for this then. So their excuse is that we have some kind of other celestial body besides the sun and moon and the sky. Uh, one term I've seen for is an anti-moon. But how come you only see this in the case of a lunar eclipse and never in any other instances ever? You never look up any old other random day or night and see this anti-moon up there in the sky. I don't know. I mean, I'm not really impressed with that one either. Maybe there's some kind of funky celestial body, you know, your anti-moon or whatever that's causing this. What else you got? Okay, fine. We'll go back to a large body of water again, the ocean or maybe a great lake. And just watch a ship sailing off toward the horizon and watch it drop below the horizon. Now, that ship isn't actually sinking, but as it goes out of view over the horizon, it'll look kind of like it's falling into the water. It's not actually sinking. It's just an effect of the curvature of the Earth. It's dropping out of your view as it goes over the curve. If you're watching that across a big flat Earth, you should be able to see it keep just getting smaller and smaller and smaller um, rather than seemingly sinking. If it was a flat Earth, you should be able to watch it shrink until it's just basically an imperceivable speck rather than it looking like it's dropping into the water. If you see it instead seemingly sinking, then you're seeing proof that the Earth is round. Going back to my example of watching the sunset on the Pacific Ocean, if you was to watch that ship drop out of view, but then suddenly you had a nearby structure, I don't know, a tall tower or something you could climb up, you should be able to get up high enough to where you can see the ship again after it dropped out of view at sea level. That would work again on a round Earth, not with the flat Earth model. Now, if you don't like that one either, you don't fancy going all the way to the ocean or a great lake, we can do a variation of that. Now, this one here, we're not going to have a ship sailing off that we can watch drop off the horizon, but we'll be able to see how far you can see at ground level, then have you go up, I don't know, a 50-story building or up a tall tower of some kind and see how much farther you can see from the top of it than you could from the bottom. Now, if you're in an area with really tall hills and mountains, a flat earther might use the excuse of like, well, yeah, but if you get up that higher, you know, whatever it is you're climbing up, now you're able to see over top of those hills that were previously obstructing your view. Okay, so fine. Do this in some kind of like a big expanse of flat plains or something. If you can do this, I bet you that you'll be able to see things farther away from higher up that tower building or whatever it is uh, than you were able to see at the ground level. Again, this works with a round earth model. It wouldn't make a difference on a flat earth model. So if you go up that tower or whatever and can see farther than you could at ground level, that supports that the Earth is round, not flat. 
you know, actually come to think of it, that whole climbing the tower thing might be uh, an alternative to the sunset on the beach thing where um, I had you stand up after the sun drops out of view. Well, whenever the sun drops out of view by this tall tower of whatever kind it is, then rush up that tower real quick and you should be able to see the sun for a bit longer before it goes down again from that vantage point. If this happens, then you have proof for your own two eyes that the earth is round, not flat. Now this is running really long, so I'm going to maybe just throw out one more possible test that we can do. Uh, we could do a lot of different variations on this one, but again, we're going to need a large body of water, just not as big as an ocean or a great lake. For this, what we'll need is, uh, and it needs to be a calm body of water too, not something with big uh, waves crashing on it. So what we need is a large inland freshwater lake or reservoir of some kind, something that's a, a handful of miles across in length. Now I need for this to be a stretch that doesn't zigzag around. I can't be like, oh, well, this is a five mile lake, but it snakes around. I need like a, one solid expanse of it to be, uh, say, at least a few miles long. Uh, the bigger, the better though. Now, according to flat earth memes, water lays flat. This is something that they use as an argument for how it doesn't make sense for it to curve around a globe. Again, obviously ignoring gravity. So if you look out across that several mile expanse of smooth, calm lake or reservoir or whatever it is, you should be able, maybe with a, the aid of like binoculars or some kind of like a terrestrial telescope, to see the far shore over there and it not be obstructed by the lake because as the flat earthers point out in all their memes, water doesn't curve upward in a big dome, it lays flat like a tabletop. Now I've seen and read about different versions of flat earth experiments that use something like this and often they'll be shining a light or a laser beam across that length of lake and have some kind of targets maybe that they're trying to line up with or I think in one of them they're shining a beam of light through like holes that were in cardboard or um, some kind of big piece of wood. But like, let's say you have these set up at different intervals along that distance of, uh, say, the shoreline of that reservoir or whatever. Uh, they, they should all line up. And if they don't line up, then that suggests that the Earth isn't flat, but it's round. Uh, that one's a little bit more tricky. Maybe a simpler one would just be to have two people on either shore. Again, make sure they're several miles apart. Get down next to the water level and just see if you can see your buddy. Or maybe at nighttime have them with like some kind of a bright light. See if you can see that light. But don't have it way up in the air. Have it down next to the water level as well. If you can't see it because the water is somehow obstructing it while well, that water lays flat it shouldn't be obstructing it it would obstruct it if it was curved over the curvature of a round earth now if you try that experiment i bet you you do not see that light on the far shore that your buddy's got because the curvature of the earth is going to prevent you from seeing it even though the flat earthers argue that the earth is flat and the water would lay flat but if that's the case the water shouldn't be obstructing your view of that light on the far shore now, a variation of this experiment that might be interesting is to have your buddy on the far shore see, I don't know, with a pole or something maybe that they could raise the light up until it comes into view from your perspective on the far side and see how far they had to raise that light up before it came into view from your side of the lake. Now, I don't know how far they'd have to raise that because that would be a variable depending on how many miles you're looking at across. I don't know what distance you're going to be using, but let's say they had to raise it 10 feet up above the water or something before it comes into view. Well, that's a very interesting proof that the Earth is round, not flat. I had, I don't remember where I seen it at, uh, an experiment with, uh, I, I believe it was with flat earthers trying to convince them. 
as I recall it, they had a helicopter on the far shore and the observer couldn't see the helicopter at all. They had to raise way up above the beach before it came out uh, into view, seemingly rising out of the lake water. Once again, this would stand as, to me, irrefutable proof that the Earth is round, not flat. Uh, before I wrap this up, I feel like I'd be remiss if I failed to mention atmospheric refraction. Atmospheric refraction is kind of potentially inconvenient to people on both sides of the debate between flat Earth or round Earth. Light wants to naturally travel in a straight line, but with atmospheric refraction, you're getting a deviation in the path of light due to differences in atmospheric density. I'm sure everybody's seen this at some point in the form of what we might refer to as heat haze. I'm sure we've all seen heat haze. And then there's also various forms of mirages. Not, I think when most people think of a mirage, they think of imagining an oasis in the desert. But mirages can really happen pretty much anywhere on Earth. If you've ever been driving down a highway enough, you've probably at some point in your life seen a sort of a mirage on the surface of the highway. Now there's three different forms of mirages that at least I'm aware of off the top of my head. You have an inferior mirage, a superior mirage, and Fata Morgana. I think when people hear superior and inferior, they think better and worse. But in the case of mirages, that's not what we have going on here. Uh, with an inferior mirage, you're seeing something as if it's below where the actual object is. When you think of the uh, imagining an oasis in the desert, that's a type of inferior mirage. Typically what's happening is you're seeing the sky as if it's below where the sky actually is. That makes it look like a pool of water on the ground. And inferior mirages are typically upside down. So if you have mountains or something in the background that's being uh, miraged on the ground there, uh, that further adds to the illusion that it's a body of water like it's a pool reflecting those mountains in the background. A superior mirage is the opposite of that. It's seeing something that's lower looking as though it's higher. So one form that I've often seen in photographs and videos is like over the ocean seeing a boat that is, we all know it's on the surface of the water, but it looks like it's floating up in the sky. So the superior mirage of that is making the image of a, you know, a ship that's actually lower look as though it's higher. Then there's Fata Morgana, which is a much more complicated mirage with uh, many layer elements to it. And they often shimmer and move uh, very visibly and they're stretching and, uh, and, and smashing all kinds of stuff going on there all at once. Now, the reason this is relevant is um, our atmospheric refraction can explain how you can sometimes see things that should be beyond your view. So you can get um, objects that should be out of view over the horizon being visible because of that bending, atmospheric bending of the light. So this is inconvenient to flat earth arguments that would, might have a picture of something like, well, how can you see this when it's supposed to be out of view? Well, atmospheric refraction can enable you to see things beyond the horizon that you shouldn't otherwise be able to see. However, this can also be inconvenient for round earth arguments because some of the experiments that I've suggested, they might, flat earthers might be able to use the excuse, well, well, the results were affected by atmospheric refraction. They always do this crap every time they don't get the result that they want. It's always some BS excuse for why it's an inconclusive result. 
I felt like I needed to acknowledge all this, though, because I try to be fair and unbiased as best I can. I try to keep it real and be honest with you. Well, I've went on long enough about this here, and like I said before, there's just so much crap every single day coming from the Flat Earth community that somebody could dedicate a full-time podcast with daily episodes just going on about what they've seen posted today. I'm not going to do that, and I can't possibly cover every single solitary thing I've ever seen. I'm probably going to regret that I didn't cover this, that, or the other. But the bottom line is that the Earth is round. We've known it's been round for thousands of years. There really should not be any debate here. Nobody has any business trying to debate this. Uh, there's no point, there's no logic behind trying to make the argument that the earth is flat because it's absolutely verifiably not flat. Anybody genuinely trying to argue sincerely that the earth is flat really must have their head way up their hind end. I don't know how many times I see them posting stuff as if there's these great mysteries that nobody can give them answers to. And yes, we do give you answers. We give you answers every single solitary day, but you don't like those answers. You reject those answers. You ignore those answers and pretend that we're not giving you answers like nobody can answer these things. Ignoring it doesn't make it go away. The earth is absolutely, unquestionably, undeniably, undebatably round. End of discussion.